Well, we looked a couple of weeks ago at Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, probably two of the most important verses in the Bible, where now is the response section. The first 11 chapters was doctrinal, and now the, the next section of Paul's epistles, all his epistles, is how do you respond to that teaching, that doctrine, those truths. And he tells you that it's your reasonable, logical response to give your body as a living sacrifice unto God in a holy way, in a way that's acceptable to him. And uh, we looked last week, well, where's the first place we need to give our bodies as a living, holy sacrifice? And the first place is to the church, to the body of Christ. And he, he said, understand that you're an individual and God's individually blessed you, but it is your responsibility to connect to the body. And that can be a difficult thing. A lot of personalities that, that it's a real stretch for them. And there's a lot of difficulty. And as you get older, you know, you want to be more of a hermit. And, you know, the, the kids get all moved out and you realize... Man, you know, a lot of the connectivity I had in the church was for the kids. And now the kids are gone, so, you know, you, you begin to minimize uh, using your gifts and, and, and being connected to the body. And in particular, he began to give a whole list of the various gifts of, that people have. And, and the end result was, use them. <laughs> Don't have them and not use them. It's important that you use them. And uh, he finished that in verse 8. And now in verse 9 of Romans 12, he's now saying, okay, where's the next section we give our bodies a living sacrifice? Those that are in our world, where we live, where we work, where we buy stuff and sell stuff and all of those things, uh, to the non-Christian world, if you would, around us, How do we respond? What is giving our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God? What is the mind of Christ that he wants us to have? The first thing he says here is let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And I'll just look at that second session first. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And here's the Brian Newberry translation. Hate what God hates to the degree he hates it. And love what God loves to the degree he loves it. You know, being in these sinful bodies, we are just so often thinking the opposite of God. A matter of fact, most of what God teaches is we never would have came to that conclusion even if we live to be 10,000 years old. But the Lord comes with these teachings that are found nowhere else but in the Christian Bible of how we are to respond. And, And I've seen it so often in my own life and other people's lives where they feel something so strongly or their mind's calculations has brought them to a different conclusion. But yet it's so clear in the Bible how God wants me to respond. But it just doesn't feel right. It feels wrong. It feels unnatural. It, it doesn't feel like the way I, I, I should go here. 
And I can't tell you how many times in a week somebody will come saying, I know the Bible says this, but, you know, I just really feel like I need to move in with my girlfriend. And guess what? We were looking in the ads for an apartment and we found one. That is just a sign from God. It's like, you know, I think people find apartments without God's help all the time. Um, And typically you look for, you know, buying a car. There's probably one available. You know, looking for an apartment, you're probably going to find one. You know, I I don't think that's some some big sign from God. But they're they're straining at it. And and you basically say you're, you're, you're you're in a valley of decision. And let me ask you, have your feelings ever been wrong? <laughs> yeah, they have. Well, how do you know this isn't one of those times? And if it's in contradiction to what God's word is saying, I can 100% guarantee you that your mind is wrong. And, and this, is, this is where we come in our, our various times in our life. You know, I, I think in my kids as they, they grew up and, and, you know, as they're young kids, they pretty much... Do what you say, you know, with a little pressure or a little threat of getting spanked or whatever. But then they get into those junior high years and, and it's, it's hard. Then they get older and, it's, and you're basically having the same discussion as, you know, wisdom is hearing what a more experienced person says or a person who has traveled the road you've traveled uh, or have made mistakes that you're getting ready to make. And can tell you there's a lot of pain in that. And wisdom says, even though my mind, even though my emotions, even though my body is feeling the opposite, I'm going to do what's wise. You know, the Proverbs say that even the best decisions you can make without counsel will end up in disappointment. Because it's not always just making the right choice, but it's the right timing. It's with the right attitude. Uh, there's a lot of things that go in to make the right choice a blessing. Um, and so, uh, again, without counsel, and, you know, don't just talk to me. Talk to somebody else. You'll find the same thing. But it's so hard for that 13-year-old, 16-year-old, 20-year-old, whatever, to say, er, put on the brakes and to say, okay, I'm going to listen to wisdom and do it. And, and this is what we're doing with our Heavenly Father. We're, in essence, saying... We believe that your counsel is right, even though everything around me says the opposite. I'm going to go with what you say, and I guarantee you, you won't be disappointed. You'll look back a year, 10 years later going, that would have been the most disastrous choice in my life. I'm so glad that I heeded the wisdom of God, heeded the wisdom of, of godly counsel, And so, in essence, it's saying, make the right choice. Agree with God. Hate what he hates to the degree he hates it. Love what he loves to the degree he loves it. And then the part before that, love be without hypocrisy. Have a love for God, but but not with hypocrisy added in with it. And let me tell you, people can tell the real deal. You know, often people think they're fooling people and they're fooling anybody but themselves. You know, I I grew up in the church and I've been to a lot of different churches in my life. And and uh, you can you can see where people feel the pressure to appear perfect or to appear 
greater than they are. And, you know, I've done everything I can in the 25 years to say, we don't have to do that here. We can be the same way at church as we are at home, as we're at work, as we're with a family or as we're with friends or a sporting activity. We can be the same. We do not have to to be different. Nobody is putting some unreal expectation on you. But I've grown up again in in churches where people play the part and it puts pressure on other people to play the part. And before you know it, I, I can remember as a kid, you know, my parents just screaming at each other on the way to church. You know, a little, few little cuss words come out and this and that. And we pull into the parking lot and the parents look at us and say, do not tell anybody what happened here. <laughs> and also Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. We're not going to share any of that. You know, we're going to put a smile on. We don't want to burden people. We just want to bless them. And, and the pressure as a kid to, to basically go in and, and play the part. Well, you know, when kids get junior high and their hypocrite connectors come out and in high school, they're basically saying, I've done what I've done towards God, the church, the way I live, because that's what you guys have wanted. But now I'm taking the baby steps to figure out my own way in life. And I'm asking the question, is this real? Is this really how I want to spend my life? And in essence, <clears throat> you want them to come to the conclusion of yes. But if you, you're, you're one way at one place and a different way another place, and you're, you're pretending, you know, you have one face at church and a, another face with your friends, you know, at the, at the ball game and another face, you know, at, at, around the family, it, it, it's a very confusing thing. And it's, it's a pressure that God has never put on us. As you study the Bible, it's unique in many ways, but one way it's very unique, it does not romanticize its leaders. It tells us, for example, that Noah was one man who stood against the whole world, and not for a short time. He lived to over 500 years old. He spent 100 years, 120 years, building the ark and preaching righteousness and how people needed to repent. He was on a planet that was the most wicked it had ever been. And God said, I've got to destroy it because there's just, there's no way that man's going to make a turnaround. I've got to hit the reset button here. And Noah stood firm and he built the ark and he brought all the various species onto the ark. And when the ark landed, he began to plant vineyards. The last thing we hear of Noah, he was drunk and naked in his tent. His boys came and found him that way. It embarrassed them. They were ashamed. He was ashamed. End of story. What's the, what's the message? <clears throat> Is I didn't work with Noah because he was some perfect person. I worked with Noah because he was willing to do my will. That was in his heart. Did he struggle? Did he stumble along the way? Yes, he did. But he did my will. We can go through each of the leaders and find the same thing. We think of King David, just more written about him than any other man outside of Jesus in the entire Bible. More verses on King David. He was the king of kings of Israel. He was the mighty man of faith as a little boy. But as we read through his life, I mean, he stumbled 
horribly. At one point, he counted the people against God's will, and a plague broke out. 70,000 people died because of his choice. And then later on in life, many, many commentators calculate him being around 58 years old when he sent out all his men to battle, but he stayed back and he had this affair with Bathsheba. And during that affair, she got pregnant. And he wanted to cover up this whole thing. But here's Uriah. We go back. We realize he was one of the first guys that said, even though you're being chased by Saul and you're wanting to kill him, I'll be loyal to you. And we're talking decades of living in caves, hiding out with David. And then moving over to the land of the Philistines and living at Ziglag and all the hardship that came from that. Uriah was this radically committed guy. And David said, I want to cover it up. I want you to have him killed on the battlefield. And Joab, wanting to make it even better, had everybody in his platoon killed. So it wasn't like, oh, Joab was killed only. It's like the whole platoon was killed to, to make a cover up. And it was, it was horrific. It was horrible. I mean, many people died. David trying to cover up uh, the affair and the pregnancy. But yet, what's God's commentary on David in the New Testament? In the book of Acts, it says, David was a man after my own heart who did all my will. End of story. Well, did he do a couple of extra things that wasn't in your will? Yeah, like all of us. We stumble and we fall and we make horrendous and stupid choices at times. But yet, David wanted to serve the Lord and live for God. And, you know, the last decade of his life up to when he died, he, he, he was the man of God that he always wanted to be. And it's, it's important that we continue to pursue the will of God in the, in the midst of our our warts and our tripping and our falling and all. And, and we don't have to cover that up. We don't have to hide that. We don't have to pretend that we're perfect. I can tell you that there's never been a point in my Christian life that I don't want to be farther along than I am. But at the same time, I can look back and, you know, 20 years ago and 10 years ago and five years ago, one year ago, I'm continually growing in the Lord. I, I'm not the same person I was then. God has grown me. But in the meantime, we don't have to pretend that we're perfect and the perfect husband and the perfect father and I, I do everything. I've never given that, that thought. But yet, even then, I'll have, you know, some lady come up saying, straighten out my husband, you know. I know you're the perfect husband. And, you know, you know tell him the way he should be. And, and, you know, oh, I wish I had a husband like you, Brian. And, it's like, do you not hear anything I say from the pulpit? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I called my wife perfect. She hates that when I do that, but she is. And, uh, but I, I've, I've gone overboard to let you know that, you know, I am what I am. Me and Popeye, me and Popeye say that. I am what I am. <laughs> um, but it, it's by the grace of God. And, I can tell you like David, I want the will of God. I'm pursuing the will of God. I want holiness and obedience and righteousness. But I can tell you, point blank, it's not perfected in any of us. And I don't think in any Christian in all of history has it been perfected. I think all of us died falling short and continuing falling short of the glory of God. And in the midst of that, God's grace is great. 
Where our sin abounds, his grace abounds more. So in essence, I'm saying that we don't have to appear like a perfect Christian in the workplace or in our neighborhood. We, we can let them know that, that my shortcomings are great, but God's grace is greater. What's that say to the world? I can't tell you how many times I've had people say to go to church, oh, I, you know, I'm just not good enough to go to church. Because in their mind, if I come to church, I've got to start appearing as this perfect person and I can't take the pressure. But if they're looking at you and you're not covering it up and trying to pretend to be something other than you are, you're just you, but yet you love God and they see God's favor on your life and blessings on your life and grace on your life. And they, you're like, man, you, you, you're a bigger screw up than I am, but <laughs> there's a blessing on your life. That's, that's the testimony. And that's the testimony we see throughout the scriptures. And so let your love for God and one another be without hypocrisy. And in verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. And, and again, it's going back to realize that as a Christian, we are going to make connections that we never would have made as a non-Christian. You know, at church, for example, you know, God chose the weak things of this world, the abased things of the world, the foolish things of this world. That's who he's called. So when people come to Christ here, and we've had such a wonderful season of many people in these last few months coming to Christ, they come in as a foolish person. And they're stupid in what they say and offensive in what they say. And, and then there's all the personality thing. If, if I, you know, as a, as a non-Christian, I just connect with everybody in the same economic status, in the same uh, mentality, you know, our life, our kids, every, everything was together and, and, and that was more comfortable for me. But now coming to church, I'm having to connect with people that I never, they irritate me. I don't like them. I have nothing in common with them. But yet I'm connected with them in this home Bible study or this Sunday school ministry or the orphanage ministry. And, and it's stretching for me. And, and we realize that. God realizes that. I love, as you look at Peter there, he says that we're all living stones that make up the temple of God. And God places them, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 12, where it says he places us in the way that pleases him. And so here you are, this living stone, and God puts this other stone next to you, and you're like, ah, please trade it out, different stone. No. This is a stone I want next to you. And then you get a stone put on top of you. It's like, oh, this is weird. You know, I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. I'm being surrounded by all these living stones that that are not in my normal sphere of who I like to associate with. It's a hard thing. And it's interesting here. It says, just be kindly affectionate towards one another with what? It doesn't say agape love. It says with a brotherly love, a love that non-Christians can generate. We're made, all made in the image of God and we have the ability to, to love uh, those who love us and those we, that are families and so forth that we love. And so again here he's saying, understand that God's commanding you to, to be with them, connected with them in, in, a, 
and, and a love, just a brotherly love. And so it's a hard thing. You know, I've seen uh, wealthy people that are in our church and, you know, they end up in a home fellowship and every week it's like, I need, pray for me, I need $35 for my water bill, you know, and they're like with their friends, they're discussing, you know, do we do the Caribbean cruise or travel Europe or, you know, do the Orient thing and, you know, they're, they're, they're like $35, like, it's not even enough money to even talk about. But here we are week after week praying for this guy's electric bill and this guy's car to work and it's like, this is uncomfortable for me. I haven't been in that circle maybe ever or maybe in years. I feel like I'm being dragged down into this social economical place that I, I really don't want to be around. It's uncomfortable for me. And so again, it's, yeah, but that's the way God's connected you. It's, it's going to create in you a character that you would never have had. And you just need to be kindly affectionate. Or you see some guy that's, you know, getting off of drugs and he comes to church and starting to walk with the Lord and he's just, he's foolish. And here's some guy listening to him and it's like, that guy just spent 45 minutes telling me a story he could have told me in two minutes. And it was hard to listen to him for 30 seconds. It just about destroyed me listening to him for 45 minutes. And when I heard the end of the story, I was like, dude, you could have said that in two minutes. I didn't say that to him. but And you, you just realize, that's it. That's who we are. We're a bunch of foolish people that God's making wise. We're a bunch of weak people that God's making strong. And in the meantime, we minister to people and we minister to the foolish and the weak and the debased. And, you know, it wasn't so much about the story as you listening to him. It's a healing thing when people listen to you. Psychologists make a lot of money on that. Well, how did you feel about that? Tell me more. Of course, you'll get a $300 bill, but it's healing. It's like, ah, just without being interrupted or feeling pressure to cut this thing short, I was able just to, to share. It's a healing thing. It's a thing that tells people that you love them. They feel love by you listening to them. And uh, so again here, we, we just realize that we need to be kindly affectionate in this brother love. And then in honor, giving preference to one another. In essence, he's saying, honoring people that don't deserve to be honored. <laughs> giving time to people that, that don't deserve your time. But for the Lord, for serving the Lord, you do it anyway. Giving them preference. And uh, that's one, I quote that verse probably once a week at least. Giving preference to one another. Putting others people's interests before your interests. Putting, putting other people's needs before your own needs. And that's something as you mature as a human being, you become other-centered. But as a Christian, you come to the place that you're not just being other-centered, but you're giving them honor. And you're giving them preference as if they were royalty. As if they were you know, some important person. You're giving him that preference. And it's something that's about your character. It's not so much that it took 45 minutes for them to tell you a two-minute story. It's really about you and your attitude and your willingness to, to give preference and honor to somebody that doesn't deserve it. And that's our life as Christians. That's, that's our testimony. We're not out in the rat race fighting with all the other rats, you know, you're in the grocery store and you're heading up to the line. You see some person just sprinting to get in front of you. It's like, you don't need to sprint. Take, 
take that place. I'm giving you honor. I'm honoring, giving you preference. And then in verse 11, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So it would read like this, not lagging in diligence, serving the Lord, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So you look at those two elements, diligence in your faith, being in the spirit in your faith. If one of those elements comes out, you can't serve the Lord. And so he's saying here to not lag in diligence. And that, that's the thing. You know, as you're a new Christian, you're excited about everything and you're on the honeymoon period. But then you soon thereafter hit the desert, you know, hit the valley. And it's like, is it joyful to be Christian? No. Is, it, is, it, is there benefits that I can see serving the Lord? No, not, not in the valley, not in the desert. But I need to have the same diligence. I love that Ephesians in Revelation 2, the church of Ephesus. He says, get back to your first love. The love you had for the Bible, the love you had going to church, the the love you had for worship and prayer and talking about Christ. You need to never lose that first love. And even though you're going through a difficult time that sometimes lasts for years, I'm not lacking in diligence. You're, you're doing what you're doing for different reasons now. You know, I, I, I hear it all the time. I'll have, you know, some, somebody tell, tell me, it's like, you know, I really need to get out of this marriage because I don't feel like I love them anymore. And it's, I say to them, well, it's really a good reason you didn't marry them because you love them, but because you chose before God to remain faithful and committed to them until you die. Now, did you enjoy your marriage because you felt love for a season? Yes. And you'll feel love again. And then you'll feel not love again. <laughs> and then you'll feel love again and not feel that. That's our body. It's a roller coaster. But you, you, you made a commitment and God's holding you to that commitment until you die. There's no marriage in heaven, so it ends on planet Earth. You know, so if it's a miserable thing, I'm sorry. But there's a lot of miserable things. It's just some people are miserable with their kids. Some people are miserable where they work. Some people are miserable because their body is broken down on them. There's, there's a lot of reasons we're miserable being on planet Earth. But we need to not lag in diligence. We need to continue serving the Lord, whether we feel it joyfully or happily or, or not. We need to not waste a moment. Be diligent in prayer, diligent in the word, diligent and the body of Christ and serving one another and, and living an obedient life for the Lord, even when it feels like it doesn't pay off, even when there's not an immediate gratification of satisfaction or joy. Because we go through lives where it doesn't feel satisfying being married or being a parent or working at the job we work at or living where we live. Or, that's that's, that's going to continually ebb and flow. And that's why we make a commitment to God and we need to stay firm with that commitment. Not lagging in diligence, serving the Lord. And then notice the next thing there, fervent in spirit. In the Greek, it reads like this. Concerning the spirit, boiling. I love that. Concerning the spirit, boiling. And we need to remain on fire, boiling, in the things of the spirit. The love of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit, the gifts of the spirit. Hearing that small, 
small, still voice, being affected by that gentle breeze, hearing God speak to you and obeying it. You know what? Without the Spirit, the Christian life cannot be lived. You cannot have the fruits of the Spirit without the Spirit. (laughs) You can't have the gifts of the Spirit without the Spirit. You can't have the love of the Spirit without the Spirit. And it's important that we, he says there in 2 Timothy, to, 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 Paul says to Timothy, stir up the gifts. It's, it's literally build the fire back up. Get, get some more logs on there and some more kindling and start blowing out, giving it more oxygen. And that thing that looks like it's going to die out, get it blazing again. It's up to you. We, we, we realize as we look through the scriptures, it says it's up to you to add to your faith. God's given you a measure of faith. You've been saved by that mustard seed of faith. Now you need to be diligent in your faith, it says in Peter. And add to your faith, and he gives a list. Virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control. And he goes on to the list, till agape love. And he says, if these things are yours, and you're abounding. It's, it's on you. It's, he's saying it's yours. You, you have remained diligent. You remained fervent in spirit, boiling. I love Paul there in 1 Corinthians 14, where he's talking about prophecy and tongues and other gifts. And he says, I pray in tongues more than you all. That's interesting. And Paul says, it doesn't matter where I go to visit. I've never met anybody boiling more <laughs> concerning the things of the Spirit. And I can tell you that I... I just constantly am praying in the Spirit. And I, I do it more than anybody. In essence, he's saying, you guys need to up your game. You, you need to live life in the Spirit. Be conscious of the Spirit living in you and, and conscious of that spiritual life. And if you're not boiling, God's Spirit's not boiling in you to pray without ceasing. The Spirit of God's not boiling within you to be a witness or to worship with all your heart by the power of the Spirit to to glorify God. He's saying you can't serve the Lord. You can't serve the Lord without your diligence. You can't serve the Lord without being on fire in the Spirit. And then in verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Rejoicing in hope. What's the hope? In the the Greek, the hope is not, I hope it happens. It's, I'm positive it's going to happen. And that's my hope. And it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And in the meantime, I need to keep my eye on the goal. For us as Christians, it's heaven. Being in our new body. Being with the Lord. And we need to constantly keep that in our mind. Paul said, put your mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. That we need to continue to keep that. Well, my car broke down. But you're going to heaven. This life is a vapor. We're going to quickly be out of this body and present with the Lord. And it's going to seem like just a second of time. But my roof is leaking. But your mansion in heaven won't be. You know, we we need to, no matter how bad things are, guys... We're at this bus stop for a few minutes and we're going to be in heaven. And we need to constantly encourage ourselves in the Lord, rejoicing in the hope that we have as believers. 
earth and its pains and sufferings and evil and difficulty is for a vapor of time and soon we're going to be out of here. And then the next thing he says, um, not just rejoicing in hope, but he says patient endurance in tribulations. Boy, Jesus had so many teachings on us to his apostles. I want to speak this to you in advance that you're not stumbled. But people are going to curse you. They're going to beat you up. They're going to imprison you. They're going to even kill you thinking they're doing God's service. Understand, this is the life you've chosen as a Christian. And I love that where uh, the church was planted in Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas came back to encourage the church. And the message was, there are many more tribulations you must go through before you enter the kingdom. And the church was encouraged. It's like, wow, I was, I was doing this thing as a sprint and I, I need to realize I need to have the mentality of a, a marathon here. And I guarantee you, you're going to continue to go through tribulations until you die. And there'll probably be immense tribulations uh, continuing in the last years of your life. It's never going to go away. And so we need to have the mentality of God turning all things around for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And to realize this is the pain, the suffering, the part of sin entering this world. And it's not God punishing me. It's not God against me. It's not God not protecting you. It's just in this world, we have tribulations. Satan hates your guts. He is plotting and planning how to at least neutralize you, if not to cause you to walk away from God. And believe me, you're on his mind continuously. We're in a world where it's thoughts and philosophies and ways of living are just completely opposite of us. So there's not that kind of support. We are, as Christians, uh, alone. Us encouraging one another and God and the power of his spirit. And outside of that, we are on a, a very treacherous road. And then I love the way he describes prayer here. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. I, that's the perfect, if you understand prayer, and as you're growing in prayer as a believer, that's the way you would describe it. Continuing. Continuing when you feel like God's not hearing you. Continuing where it seems like it's impossible. Just continuing. And then steadfastly, not to be moved. Last night I had a sister come up and she goes, you know, that verse right there, I was a brand new believer and God just spoke to me about that. I was praying for my aunt who was a Buddhist and, and I tried to share Christ with her and she was angry. She didn't talk to me for a long time. And God just spoke to me, continue steadfastly in your prayers for your aunt. Don't ever stop. And she didn't talk to her for years and she started talking to her and just totally not interested at all about her life and her Christian experience. And then this last week, her aunt called her out of the clear blue saying, I want to start going to church with you. And she goes, that's right, her right over there. She's here tonight. She goes, that verse is such a key to every area of her life. And I'm like, man, I got to share that tomorrow. That's such a good example. Continuing steadfast in prayer. And you know, the thing you find out is there's no, there's no immediate gratification in praying. Every inch 
Every inch is denying yourself and walking totally in faith. You know, in worship, there's some spiritual gratification. You enjoy the music, get to clap. You know, as much as God's being blessed, it's enjoyable to us as well. You know, to hear a message, you know, there's, there's death to yourself that has to happen. But there's some gratification in hearing things and being encouraged and learning new things. There's, there's immediate gratification to our flesh in some ways. But when it comes to prayer, there is no gratification. From the moment you begin to pray, it's, it's a wrestling match. And as you mature in your faith, you've got to realize, I'm continuing. I'm steadfast, unmovable in my life of prayer. And then in verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. In the other epistles, it, when it talks like this, it, it's saying meeting the urgent needs. It's sort of that, not the needs you've been planning on. You support this missionary on a monthly basis or supporting this ministry. This is sort of a surprise. It's sort of like, wow, there's this urgent need right this moment. And it means that you've got to give of yourself in a great, greatly sacrificial way. It means that three in the morning, you've got to go. It means that you've got to uh, give maybe financially, definitely give of your time, maybe giving of yourself physically to, to help in this urgent need. And uh, then also give into hospitality. The, the ability to welcome people into your home. I'm not saying total strangers, but... That wouldn't be safe, but to bring people into your home that are, are, have an urgent need. And, uh, you know, the gift of hospitality is a gift. You know, I, I can tell you that, you know, I've been in people's homes and I'm staying there for a few days and they, you can tell they just cleaned everything perfectly and you walk in and, and you, you feel like, oh my goodness, I hope I don't spill anything, drop anything, break anything. And you're sort of there just... Ah, and you get outside their house like, oh my goodness, I'm just so uptight there. But I've been in other people's homes. You walk in and there's some laundry they haven't folded on the couch. And there's the shoes they kicked off probably three days ago and haven't put away. There's dishes in the sink. And I'm like, I'm going to enjoy this. <laughs> you know, it feels like being at home. This, this, is, this is comfortable. They're not putting on airs for me. They're not... They're not trying to create an environment. They're like, this is the way we live, join us. And I like that. And we, you know, we have just always had, from, since I've been a pastor, we have missionaries and people coming into our home almost continuously year-round. You know, our, our, our boys have, you know, slept in their beds rarely, you know. They get kicked out all the time. And it, it's just, we, we love it. But I learned early on that, you know, come and live the way we live. You know, we, we're eating uh, macaroni and cheese and, you know, no steak is going to be cooked for you. You know, <laughs> this is the way we live. This is the way we eat. This is the way we function. And you just find that people immediately just are at ease and can rest and get their batteries recharged. It's, it's a powerful thing to be on either end of hospitality but all of us as Christians need to, again, have this gift of hospitality. Notice there, it's given to hospitality. The word there is pursuing to have hospitality. And again, I, I might mention that, you know, I've, I've seen people, even as a young 
teenage boy. I've seen people in their 40s and 50s and 60s. They start disconnecting from the church. You know, partly they have extra income. Partly their kids aren't involved anymore. They've got to resort out. Why was I connected? And as you get older, you want to be more of a hermit, you know? You, you like having things the way you have things. And, and you like to fix things up a little bit. And, and it's like, man, I've had home fellowship at my house for 20 years, but now, ugh, I know if I have it, they're going to get my couch dirty. They're going to break my things. And yeah, 100% guaranteed. It's going to take me three hours to clean up afterwards. Yeah, that's for sure. But don't, don't get out of the game. Don't, don't, don't start isolating yourself. It's for your health as well as for their health to, to continue to minister to the needs of the saints, to continually to give yourself to hospitality. In verse 14, and this sort of goes to the end of the chapter, so I'm going to read the rest of the chapter. Bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of how many people? All men, those who don't deserve it. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In verse 20, therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Guys, memorize that verse 21. That is the verse you need. And and in essence, as a Christian, you've got to prepare yourself in advance with the mind of God. Typically, when people are thrown into a situation they weren't prepared for, they will react the absolute worst. Give them a couple of days to think about it. They can think, I should have did this, should have said this, should have had this attitude. I, I just did the exact worst thing I could have done. And that's just our human nature. And so this is sort of like the Sermon on the Mount. We need to prepare ourselves in advance. You're going to be persecuted. People are going to hate you. They're going to mistreat you. So in advance, love your enemies. Pray for them. Do good to them. Bless them. And now in Romans, he adds, feed them. Give them to drink. You've got to be prepared in advance or you will be overcome with evil. There's a lot of evil, wicked things that are thrown our way. I remember early on as pastoring, uh, there was a couple that came to church. They had never been to church, never really believed in God. But their son who had moved to New York to go to college there had been killed by a serial killer. And not only that, but he had been chopped up in pieces and it was just horrific. And they were just overcome with anger and grief. And they just said, let's try church. <laughs> they showed up to church. They got saved. And they told me their story. And I began to share these verses here with them. You know, tell somebody who's a brand new Christian to have this mind. And I was able to see a miracle of God. You know, basically tell him, if you have vengeance in your heart, you'll never be able to live another day on this earth. 
because you're going to be so overcome with anger, it's going to increase. The bitterness is going to increase. The desire for vengeance is going to increase. It's not going to stay neutral. It's going to continue to grow until it swallows you up and it's going to, you're going to turn on one another. You're going to turn on other people. The bitterness is a poison that spreads and defiles many. And it's, you know, I, I'm, I just honestly told them, I don't understand how anybody could come to that conclusion with what's happened to you. I mean, if you said to me right now, let's go kill the guy, I'm like, let's go. I mean, that's my first reaction. But at the same time, I understand that this is the mind of Christ that will liberate you. And uh, eventually, through a process of time, they came to that. They went to the, the hearing, and the guy was laughing and had zero remorse Zero. I mean, he's a serial killer. He's he doesn't he doesn't feel regret. And yet, there when they saw him that case, God's love just overwhelmed them, and they prayed for him, and they wrote letters telling him they loved him, and they forgave him, and um, and it was just it was a powerful thing in their life, and they were able to get past that. But uh, you know, I was able to see a miracle. I mean. No way could any human in their own strength come and live in that way. It's only by the power of God's spirit could anybody live it out. I mean, it's one thing to say, oh yeah, we love our enemies as Christians. It's another thing when you have an enemy in your face to to not want to punch him and to love him, you know. It's a hard thing to do that. And so in advance, we, we have to allow God's spirit to prepare our hearts and minds. To, to, again, when we are persecuted, to never curse, but to bless. And, and to have that, that same heart to, to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And yes, in the church that is true. But I think this is talking about the world. You know, to, to not have a judgmental spirit. You know, it's like, man, you know, this is happening and that's happening. It's like, you put your finger in their face. I told you to receive the Lord and live as a Christian. None of this would be happening right now. I mean, we all have that self-righteous spirit, but no, just, just to grab them and weep with them, saying, man, I'm so sorry. And rejoice with them. Maybe something that, you know, is not the most rejoicing thing as a Christian, but it's rejoicing to them, rejoice with them. And, and to be there on their side. And to, again, have the same mind towards one another, towards all people. Do not be high-minded. Do not be self-righteous as a Christian or not to be, I don't want to associate with the lower class of people, but to be willing to associate with everyone. And again, don't be wise in your own opinion. To come back to say, I know better than God. I know better than all the the Christians at church. And I know Pastor Brian taught that, but let me tell you, uh, he's wrong. To to not be wise in your own opinion. And again, repay no one evil for evil. But we have regard for good things in the sight of all men. To not let evil affect you. And there's evil that's going to be continuously thrown at you. Things that you never thought would enter your life will enter your life. And, and to have in mind, you know what? No matter what they say or do, I'm going to respond like Jesus. No matter how evil they are, I'm going to pray that God blesses them. I'm going to pray that things, good things happen to them. I'm not going to be moved by their wickedness towards me. 
I'm going to remain as Jesus. But then notice the next thing he says here. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. In essence, it's sort of a footnote saying, even though you are like Jesus and you're loving them and feeding them and blessing them and doing good to them, they just are possessed by the devil or they, for whatever reason, you've just rubbed them the wrong way. And it doesn't matter what you do. They are going to continue to do evil to you. And in essence, he's saying here, you need to make another game plan. You're going to continue to be like Jesus, but at the same time, you just got to stay away from those people. You've got to figure out another course of action. And I've seen it in the church here where, you know, a person just on a, a day, and one day they're, everything's great. The next day it's like, I hate your guts and I'm divorcing you. And you know what? It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you give. It doesn't matter what you do. They just have evil in their heart to divorce you, period. They're just seeking out for self, seeking out materialism, seeking out, you know, to, to do their own thing. And they don't want to be weighed down by marriage or kids or whatever. And, and basically these guys are saying, oh, I just going to do whatever she wants, give her whatever she wants or vice versa, him. And it's like, you know what? No. At this point, you've got to realize you will not live peacefully with that person. They are going to pursue you and try to crush you and hurt you. And you've got to realize that you've got to regroup. Get a good lawyer. And, and you know, as far as you, you're like Jesus. You're loving them and praying for them and blessing them. You're not going to be moved by evil. But at the same time, you realize there is no way you're ever, that person's ever going to live peaceably with you. Satan got a foothold in their heart and it's changed and you've got to make another course of action. Be wise as a serpent, but gentle as a dove and, and to understand that it's, if it were up to you and as much as it depends on you, continue to live peaceably, but it's not going to happen. And uh, again, I, I don't know, I, you know, I've been a Christian most of my life. I don't understand how people can just, in a day, have such evil intentions towards another human being but it happens regularly. And so what is our response? God emphatically says in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, vengeance is mine. Don't mess with that. That's mine. I'm the judge. You're not the judge. You're not the punisher. God's the punisher. Stay out of the way. This is something sacred and holy to God. And as much as you can justify your anger or hatred or bitterness or getting back at that person, don't. I love Psalm 73 because that's where the psalmist was struggling. And he's like, I, 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 I almost quit walking with God when I saw evil men abusing other people, getting rich off other people's misfortune. And they live this happy life with kids and grandkids and, and they die in peace. And then in other instances, I see godly people and they live godly and it never pays off for them. <laughs> they just live a difficult poverty life and they die in, in a difficult way. And he said, I almost walked away from God until I remembered. God brought to mind, man is eternal. Now, does sometime in this life, does evil catch up with the evil and they're punished for it? Yes. Does sometimes the blessings of living a righteous catch up with the, the, the righteous? Sometimes, yes. 
But it is not in God's plan right now to punish the evil for being evil and not blessing the righteous for being blessed to the degree they should be. He plans on sorting it out for eternity. So you're a Christian, you love the Lord, but you're in prison for being a Christian. You've been in prison for 50 years and you die in prison, not seeing your family in horrible conditions. But when you die, God says, I have all of eternity to bless you for honoring me and living a righteous life. And when you look, you've been in heaven for a billion years and you look back, earth won't even seem like a second. It won't even seem like a second of time. In the same way with the wicked. It's, it's I, I don't have to punish them now. I have a plan to do that for all of eternity. In a lake of fire, a continuous punishment, separated from me, and don't mess it up. Don't, don't make it so I can give them part vengeance because you've already gave them part vengeance. Stay out of the way. If they don't repent, I have a plan that's better than your plan. So far as you right now, feed your enemy. Give drink to your enemy. Love them, bless them, do good to them. Don't be affected by their evil. Be so filled with the Spirit. Be so prepared for the evil that this world's going to throw at you, that you are not moved by the wickedness of man, the wickedness of the devil. You are unmovable. Now, there's a little phrase there at the end of verse 20. It says, In so doing, you will heap coals of fire on their head. Now, some, and it's about split 50 50 of the, of the various commentaries, where the, they say that this is, you've made room. You didn't give any of your vengeance, so you've made 100% room for God to heap coals of fire of vengeance upon their head when it comes that time. Others read this and they say, well, in the Eastern culture at this time, when people would have hot coals, they would put them on their hat there on a bowl and they would walk and they would then deliver some of the hot coals to somebody else so they don't have to fight to make a fire. Thus, they're warm at night and They can cook their food and it's just a tremendous blessing for them to have fire. And so you're, by you feeding them and giving them a drink, it's like giving them fire. You're giving them warmth. You're giving them blessings. So there's two different ways. I personally see it the first way. You know, by you being like Jesus, unmoved by evil, you're giving full room for God to bring the coals of fire upon their head in the day of vengeance of our God. But either way, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but what? Overcome evil with good. How are we going to fight the evil of this world? Killing them with kindness. Through prayer. Through blessing them. Through loving them. You know, we, we say we're the light of the world. We're salt of the earth. But when do we really stand out as a Christian? When we are in the worst possible condition and our faith is unmoved. When we are in a place of, of uh, where most people would give up and be bitter and curse God or whatever, that we're there going, you know, naked I came to this world, naked I go out, blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet I'll still trust in him. And it's such a powerful testimony when they see you go through a hard, difficult time and you are the same person in that difficult time as you were in the good times. And so again, not being overcome with evil, but overcoming evil with good.
Well, Lord, we thank you for this time this morning we've had in your word. And we thank you for all these one-liners. They really, these proverbs, if you would, cause us to wrestle with the deeper truth and how it applies to our life. And I've sort of uh, given a starter for that. But I know there's many more things in these one-liners that you want to speak into our life. And we just ask today that we would allow your word to go deep into our hearts and we wouldn't forget it but meditate on it and continue to wrestle and struggle with it and to come with the same conclusion that you have come up with. Whether we feel it, whether we think it, whether we see it, whether our body likes it or not, that we would come in complete agreement with you. That we would not be wise in our own opinion. We would humble ourselves and hear you and believe you, the almighty the eternal, perfect God would have the better answer than us finite uh, humans and sinful bodies would have. So wise. And so we ask today, Lord, that you would just wash us in the word, strengthen the feeble hands, strengthen the feeble knees, that we would walk out of here today having just heard a potpourri of truths, but grabbed on to what your spirit is speaking to us, that we would be boiling in the Spirit, hearing what your Spirit is speaking into our lives today and leaving here with just founded, grounded in the truth. And we thank you, Lord, for the goodness of your Spirit drawing us here today, helping us overcome our flesh and coming here to set as sheep to be fed by our shepherd, you, Lord, by your Spirit feeding us. We thank you. And just uh, restore us, Lord. If we're lacking in diligence, Lord, let us, by the power of your Spirit, purpose in our heart. If we're not fervent in the Spirit or continuing steadfastly in prayer, or if we're being overcome by evil, Lord, just please give us that purpose in our heart like Daniel and and just say, I'm not going to be moved by this pagan place. I'm going to continue to serve the Lord and Give us strength in us, Lord, to be the people of God, be connected in the body, be serving one another as you've called us to. And we thank you again in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Yes, Lord. Thank you, God. Wonderful thing. And uh, I can't encourage you enough to come back tonight. Bye-bye.